Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and uh, turn to Galatians, the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Galatians chapter 4. We have been walking step by step through the book of Galatians for the past several weeks. And uh, we have gotten all the way up to Galatians 4, really verse 12. And um, as we... As we unpack this further, we have been using a method of study that is outlined by these three letters. And so I'm going to continue to quiz you on this. If you are new with us or you have never seen these before, um, that's okay. You're off the hook today. And I don't expect you to know what these are. But uh, after today, you're not off the hook anymore. So I'm going to count to three. And those of you who have been with us, I want you to speak these out, okay? Speak these out loudly and proudly, let you know them, and uh, then we're going to, I'm going to explain to you why this is so valuable, okay? So here we go, one, two, three. Man, you guys are getting to be pros at this. Observation, interpretation, application, these are uh, the three steps that we are seeking to employ as we open the Bible and study it together. And uh, my, my prayer is that you as the church, by the time we get all the way through the book of Galatians, that this is not something that you simply will want to use in Galatians, but every time you open your Bibles, that this will just stick in your minds and you go, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. As I'm reading, I need to begin by observing... And then after I've observed, I need to go back and look at my observations and interpret that right, seeking to see in context what is this saying, to to look at all of these things. And then in application at the end, everyone say end. So at the end, we want to apply this, okay? And the reason for that is if we open our Bibles and we jump right into seeking to try to apply this to our own lives chances are we're going to miss some things that we might have seen if we took the time to observe it, to chew on it, and then to get to the end and ask the question, how does this apply to me and my walk with the Lord or to the church as a whole? What does this look like? And so as we navigate this, I I just want you to keep in mind that each step of this process is super important. And uh, this process was actually, I, I had never heard of this process until I went to Bible college and studied uh, specifically through a book by a guy named Howard Hendricks. Uh, the book's name is Living by the Book. So if you're looking for more in-depth uh, study of these three major points, get that book, walk through it. It has worksheets built into the book. It's a great tool for you as you grow in your ability to study and understand God's word well. And uh, one of the, one of the um, 
tools that I like to employ at times is actually reading through, and as part of my observation, seeing if the text naturally breaks itself up into an outline. Now, how many of you guys have had to create an outline before? Raise your hands, okay? This is a process that is taught even within just normal education as we navigate how to identify structures and to, to walk bit by bit, piece by piece, through something that's being written. And uh, today, I want to give you as a framework for this, I, I went ahead and did the work for you on this, because this can take some time, but I want you to be able to see an observation uh, that we can divide texts like this up into uh, uh, an outline format that makes it easier for us to chew on little bits at a time. And so the outline format that we're going to use today, navigating verse 12 of chapter 4 through verse 1 of chapter 5, looks something like this. In verses 12 through 21, we're going to see that Paul employs some relational or personal elements here that we, we don't see in all of his letters. And in fact, we don't always see this in uh, all of the books written. Um, one example of the opposite of kind of personal relational language is if you go and you read the book of James, you're going to walk away and you're going to go, oh my goodness, he just kept hammering and hammering and hammering and going more and more, Okay. Because there's, it's a book of exhortations or commands. Do this. Don't do this. Follow this. Whereas here in the first section of chapter, or of this section of scripture today, we see a personal relational dynamic. And you'll see that as we get into the text. The second portion of this outline structure is in verses 22 and 23, Paul appeals to a historical element. And he's done this prior in other parts of Galatians. Uh, he's done this, this in other ways. We see that as we talked about covenants in uh, the first three chapters of Galatians and the importance of those promises that go all the way back to the book of Genesis. These narratives that if we haven't read wouldn't make a lot of sense to what Paul is saying. Nevertheless, to Paul's audience, the churches in the region of Galatia it was significant to bring them back to historical narratives and concepts they would have been familiar with in order to root into these points. The third element here is Paul uses a, 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 a narrative, a historical narrative, to paint a picture or allegorically emphasize something. That's a big term, but it really just simply means painting a picture of something else that he's emphasizing. And then the last one fits right in with our model, and that's he draws in, in the final steps of this, application to this. So we're going to see each of these elements. We're going to unpack that bit by bit. I just want you to see the structure now so you can identify that as we walk through it together. And Lord willing, later on, when you go to your own studies and you start evaluating this even from uh, your own personal time in the Word of God you'll start to pull out and even make some of your own outline structures and navigate the text a little easier. So let's start. We're going to start in verse 12. Follow along in your Bibles. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial 
to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, to pause here a minute, in these first few verses, Paul's simply uh, recounting his first interactions with the churches in Galatia, and he's setting the tone, hey, remember this time when, and we see here that it was because of some ailment that he had, that he ended up possibly stopped here in Galatia, and these people in the churches of the region of Galatia, they just cared for him. And in fact, going so far as to say, you received me, you welcomed me, you showed hospitality to me in a way that I was treated as if I was an angel of God or Jesus himself. That's a pretty profound statement. I don't know the last time you went to someone's house for dinner and you left going, man, I felt like Jesus. Okay, that's not that's not normally the description. So it emphasizes this powerful element here that the people just cared for Paul. Now, one thing I want to uh, hone in on a little bit here is Paul identifies that he had some sort of bodily ailment. Here's the reality. We don't know what that bodily ailment was. And in fact, this is an aspect, the reason I wanted to draw this out is because sometimes when we open the Bible, we can come to passages like this and get stuck on them because we start speculating, right? We go, what? I wonder what it was. Well, it could have been this, and it could have been this, or maybe it wasn't any of those things. And we can distract ourselves. The reality is, Paul is not super concerned here as he's writing to the churches in Galatia, at reminding them exactly what was going on, because that wasn't the point. And so if we read this and someone says to you, well, what was it exactly that Paul was suffering from in Galatians 4? Your response doesn't need to be hypothetical. You can simply say, in accuracy with the text, I don't know. Those three words are a really powerful entity when we're studying Scripture, because there's a lot of things that we don't know. No. And in fact, it's so rare occasionally for us to uh, to actually say that. We either avoid conversations because we don't know, or we you, you, you may have engaged with people before who just try to give you kind of a, an out there answer simply so they can say, well, I answered your question. But I want to train you that it's okay to say, I, I don't know. And in fact, there are many people who will respect you so much more if you can admit where you don't know, rather than trying to admit that you do know when you really don't. Okay? So we're going to practice, just for a second. We're going to rabbit trail off. I'm going to, pra- I'm going to count to three, and I just want to hear you say, I don't know. Okay? So here we go. One, two, three. Perfect. Now you've practiced. The first one's out of the way from here on out. It's okay to say that. All right? It's okay not to know. If you're studying scripture and you engage in something you just don't know, say that. And maybe even, I, I, if you looked at my observation lines, there's a lot of question marks sometimes. I will write something out and there's question mark. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Okay. Now, let's move on from here into verse 15. <clears throat> he says, what then has become of your Blessedness, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. 
They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Now, the reality of this is um, he shifts gears here. So in the first portion, you have kind of this praiseworthy statement of going, man, you guys showed me so much hospitality. And then it shifts. What happened? What, what has become of your blessedness? What, what, what took place? And in fact, he goes further to emphasize, you guys would have, if you had been able to, given me your own eyes to help me in my trial. That, that's how they were perceived as. And now there's this shift. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, church, when we think about just that question in and of itself, how many of you have experienced that sense where you spoke truth and then someone wanted nothing to do with you? All right, a few of you have have experienced. If you haven't, you probably will. And if you haven't experienced that, there's a possibility there that uh, you, you may not have directly uh, shared the gospel with someone yet. Now, that's not always the case. But the reason I say this is because we know the truth of the gospel is offensive to those who, who don't believe. And if I, am, if I am weakly striving to share this hope and this truth and this joy that I have, chances are I'm going to encounter and engage some people who do not appreciate that. And who don't want anything to do with me once they find out that I do. Now, what's even more interesting about this, and this is something that has burdened me, and I'm, I'm going to share it with you in love, okay? Everyone say, in love. <laughs> I want you to know that, that in no way do, do I want to do, do come across as vindictive or passive-aggressive. But I am burdened, church, that especially in this current season... There are so many brothers and sisters in Christ who are sharing their own opinions about earthly things and they do not care what other people think. But when I engage with brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them, what keeps you from sharing the gospel with your circle of influence? The number one response I get is, well, I just don't want to make people uncomfortable I don't want to offend someone. I don't want to damage that relationship. And I'm going, my goodness, in the last two months, I think I've seen more damaged relationships through media than I have at any other time in my life. Okay? And so I just throw caution to that church because if we, if we are able and willing to speak out about our own personal opinions, whether that's about politics or about this virus or about all this other stuff, I'm not... Uh, questioning whether or not you should be able to share your own thoughts and opinions, okay? I don't want the church to become a bunch of passive people who don't lean into these circumstances. But, am I just as passionate about sharing the hope and the truth that there is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone? Am, Am I just as passionate, realistically, biblically, am I more passionate about that or these earthly things that, in eternity's view are going to fade away. I just want you to wrestle with that question. 
Paul here spoke the gospel to these people during the time they were caring for him. They clearly had received that and heard him, but now were treating him as, as an enemy because of the truth that he has spoken to them in this, in this portion. Okay? And then if we go further into that, there's something really interesting in verse 17. This word, they, okay, if I'm observing the text, I'm going to come to this they and I'm going to go, what, who, who is they? It doesn't give me much insight here. And so if you're going to observe, you might uh, question mark here, question mark here. Who, who is they? Because they are clearly having a pretty profound influence of the churches of Galatia and not in a good way. So it could be valuable for me to know who they is. Okay, <laughs> that, that sounds really funny when you say it that way. Who they is. Um, now, this is an example of when it is important that we not just start here in Galatians 4 verse 12, but that we start in Galatians 1 and work our way through this letter. And I will plug it again. If you have not completed the Galatians challenge yet during our series, do that, okay? This next week, start tomorrow, start on Monday, read Galatians 1, Tuesday, read chapter 2. There's six chapters in the book of Galatians. You'll get through the whole book uh, before next Sunday, and then you, you'll be ready to jump in together with our time. But I'm going to take you back to a couple of, uh, a couple of verses in uh, Galatians 1, specifically verse 7. Paul identifies some, some opponents to the true gospel going out. And so in Galatians 1, uh, verse 6, you see him say, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who's called you and pursuing a different gospel. But then in verse 7, he, he, he clarifies, he says, not that there is another one, but there are some, everyone say some, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is a separate group of people, and yet they are having a profoundly negative influence on the churches in Galatia. Now, if we go forward another chapter to chapter 2, verse 4, he says there, yet, because of false brothers, I'm going to say false, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might, see they, they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, I reference back to these other passages because it makes a lot of sense as we're reading through the letter of Galatians that they those who are opposed to the true gospel are any number of false teachers, false brothers, false prophets who are seeking to draw the people in Galatia away from the true gospel and pursuing something that is not the true gospel. Those false teachers, false brothers, false prophets, all of those things, church, still exist today. Those warnings are not rooted simply in uh, this time in Galatians, and then somehow we've grown out of that. You, enco- you will encounter those things right here today, okay? You, you, there will be people you come into contact with. There will be people who come into our church gatherings 
who, who are, are not true followers of Jesus, our mission is that they would come to understand and truly follow Jesus. Amen? That, that, is, that is what we strive to see take place. They would know the truth, they would understand that, they would grasp that, and that it would, it would empower them and they would become like Paul, right? And if you don't know Paul's story, read Acts 9. Jot that down. Go back and read Acts 9. You'll see his testimony of where he was, someone who was preaching a false gospel, really seeking to distort and persecute people who followed the true gospel. And God transformed his life and set him on the path that he's in. So the, in, in this, they, they make much of you, speaking about the Galatians, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Now, there's really a couple of application points that we're going to draw out as we uh, look at this. So hang on to those thoughts in, uh, in, in those verses 15 through 17. He clarifies in verse 18, he says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Church, here is where we see that engagement in that first point of our outline. Do you see the language here that's just different. He's not simply taking a commanding tone, but you can almost feel the anguish in his heart for these people and going, my little children, I am, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth because of you. I'm, I'm burdened for you. And I, I wish I could come to you now and change how I talk to you because I, I'm just perplexed. How, how can you abandon this truth and this hope? And in the midst of all of this, we can see a couple of, a couple of parallels here. And I, I just want to give you a couple application points from these first, this first point of the outline. There's really an application for the people and for the shepherds. All right? The, the application for the people is, is a, a simple question. Am I more interested in the message or the messenger? And we see this because clearly Paul came, he had a message, they accepted that message, but then Paul, they shifted their tone on Paul for speaking the truth to them, whatever that truth was. I'm guessing it was probably a hard truth they didn't want to hear, but we don't know, right? And then there's these, these they's in the text, okay? The they's are coming into this and are, are drawing these people away and making much of them, or puffing them up in a sense, but not for a good purpose. And they were apparently going along with it. According to Galatians 1, Galatians 2, these false brothers distorting this, drawing them away from the true gospel. So, as a people, we could look at this and say, Paul is really calling into question, who are you following? Are you following Christ because of the true gospel? Or are you following some other man? Church, this is a biblical application point we need to wrestle with. Are you following Jesus or are you following men? We could go back to Galatians 1.10, right? For am I now a servant of man or a servant of Christ? If I'm a servant of man, I am no longer a servant of Christ. The two are not compatible. 
That is, as the church, you're not to serve me or our other staff. You're not to look to me or any other pastor or teacher as your saving grace, no matter how good of teacher they are. You are to fix your eyes on Jesus. Am I more interested as a follower of Christ? Are we more interested as the church in the message or the messenger? I pray that it's the message that we're holding tight to, that we are interested in following after, not the messenger. Okay? Likewise, for shepherds, and this is an application for myself, for our elders, for any of our pastors, locally, globally, any leader, shepherd who claims the name of Jesus needs to wrestle with this question. Am I more interested in the fame of myself or the formation of others? And you will easily find a lot of teachers that tickle your ears or make things sound really good, but when you get behind the scenes, it is very clear that they are in this for the fame of themselves. Very renowned, well-known Bible teachers have fallen into this trap of pride and power, and they get into it for the right reasons, and they end up falling because they became about themselves rather than striving to see the formation of the people within the body of Christ. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. The they's were concerned about just that themselves. All right. Now, moving into this second section, which is really the historical portion of our outline. Verse 21, it says, tell, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written... That, by Abraham, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, there's an observation point here that should spark all of our interests. And it is this statement in the ver- beginning of verse 22. For it is written. When we encounter this statement, what should we do, church? I heard someone say it. What? Go back, okay? We stop. Everyone say stop. We stop. Oh, oh, we got to redo that. That was like a stop. Okay. Let's try that again. We got to stop. Everyone say stop. Good. That's better. Just put the brakes on and ask the question, where is it written? He says, for it is written. So this is a good chance for us to note that down. When we're going through observation, verse 22, where is it written? And then in interpretation, we go back, we look at our cross-references, we pull in some other sources, and we figure out, where is this story written? Because I want to validate that it's actually written. And where we're going to find this is in Genesis chapters 15 through 18. In Genesis chapters 15 through 18, you have the story of Abraham and Sarah. And in the midst of all this, God promises in the what covenant? Abrahamic covenant. Okay, this is important. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant. God promises Abraham through your lineage. I'm going to bless all nations. Well, Abraham hears this promise. Life goes on. This was not an immediate 
Oh, God said this yesterday and today my wife is pregnant. Did not happen that way. In fact, years and years and years and years went on. And Abraham and Sarah are holding to this promise, but they start to get kind of weary. And so they start talking. Well, God said he was going to do this, but you and I are both really old. And I'm not sure this is going to happen. And so Sarah comprises this plan. Well, I have this servant named Hagar. And maybe, maybe I just, I'm supposed to give her to you and you have, you have the child with her because she's not struggled to have children. And so Sarah, they, they agree on this. And as you're reading the narrative in Genesis 15 through 18, at least when I read it, I'm going, what are you doing? <laughs> Why? And it's because when man takes God's promises into their own hands, rather than trusting and relying on the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises, things get messy and sinful. Okay? And so Ishmael is born to Hagar, but God tells Abraham, Abraham, I, I didn't say I was going to fulfill my promise through this, this servant woman. I said through your seed, that is with Sarah. And so finally he does, God does, and it becomes this amazing, miraculous thing because it was so unlikely all these years. And they, their faith, they're, they're, they're doubting, they really are, they're doubting, is God really going to fulfill this promise in the way that he said he was? And so this brings in the historical account, the historical narrative that the Galatia, the churches of Galatia would have known, they would have recognized this narrative. And then he goes on. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. So he takes this historical narrative and he paints a picture to emphasize his point. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, if you're confused in reading this, it's okay. This is a challenging, probably the most challenging passage in the book of Galatians is right here in Galatians 4. But what he is emphasizing here is this picture that can be painted through the narrative in Genesis 15 through 18. And it's a picture of that which is done in the flesh versus that which is done by the promise. It's a picture, a picture of that which is done in slavery versus that which is done in freedom. That is, what is done by the flesh is slavery but that which is done through promise, the promises of God, brings freedom. And there's so many parallels here. This is a, a, a message, a theme that has been carried through the whole letter up to this point, that you have freedom in Christ. Everyone say freedom. You have freedom in Christ, but not through the law. The law is this guardian and this entity put in place until the time of Christ... When freedom was brought about. And in Christ we have that. And not only that, in Christ we're adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High and counted as heirs with Christ. 
powerful truth here. And the emphasis is on that which is done in slavery in the flesh cannot bring about what can only be accomplished in the promise. The promises of God that were fulfilled in the person, the sacrifice, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the hope and the promise of what's to come. Now, he goes on in verse 27, he quotes this, For it is written, oh man, what do we do? We stop, okay? Everyone say stop. (laughs) For it is written. Where is it written? Okay, where is it written? Now, interestingly enough, this is not written in Genesis 15 through 18. Some people assume that when they're reading Galatians. Instead, what you're going to find as you look at cross-references in your Bibles is that it is found in Isaiah 54, verse 1. Why is that significant? Because Isaiah was not written at the same, to, the, to the same points here in Galatians. Isaiah was written to exiles who were in Babylonian captivity, who were longing for God to bring about this redemption. So you see, you see this parallel here of him identifying and saying, this, this is how this picture can be painted to emphasize the point I'm trying to make to you. So Isaiah 54, it says this, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. This goes back and emphasizes the promise of God made through Abraham, the promise of blessing all nations, the promise of adoption, the promise to the nation of Israel in captivity that there is still hope. Church, in the midst of tumultuous times in crisis, there is still hope. What God is doing in this time, none of us really know, but according to Scripture, we do know how it ends. And that doesn't change just because things are more challenging right now. Amen? That, that hope has to stay secure and at the front, forefront of our minds. Now, he brings this home with application. 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Everyone say promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now it's interesting here as we look at these last few verses... There's a couple things that stand out. Persecuted him. So also it is now. Shall not inherit according to that which is done in slavery. But the opposite is true for those who are free. Everyone say free. In other words, church... As the Galatians would have read this letter and heard it, they would have had to acknowledge, in Christ, there will be persecution. In the same way that Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael in this story, and if you read in that story, you're going to see an example of that, where Ishmael was laughing at Isaac and the blessing he was receiving. And to this day, 
there is still so much persecution. It's really interesting. You follow this historically. So much persecution from the descendants of Ishmael to the Jewish nation. It's still happening today. But the application is also true because we know that in Christ, we are all sons of Abraham. We're all able to inherit the promise of salvation and eternity in Christ. And so we should expect persecution. Should just be there is more passages in Scripture to the followers of Christ to just be ready and anticipate that you will be persecuted than there is about people saying you're going to prosper. Okay? It's just the reality. It talks about in Christ you you'll feel like an alien or a stranger on this earth. That is there's going to be a lot of times you feel like you're the odd duck out. Because if Christ is our focus, this earthly stuff is just temporary. It's only here for the, the time we have life, breath in our lungs, and it's fading quickly. Okay? But the promise here, those who are still enslaved will not inherit what was promised through freedom. Christ fulfilled this promise. And there is freedom in Him for all who believe. Everyone say all. All who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved are counted in this inheritance and are free. And this is where the final application comes in verse 31 and verse 1 of chapter 5. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So church, I'm going to ask you this question as we close today. What is it in your life that causes you to stay in bondage? What is it in your Life in our life as the church. We individually make up the church. What is it in our life as the church that keeps us in bondage? And what step do we need to take to live as free? Freedom in Christ. And if you're here today or you're listening to this, no matter where you're at, I want you to know There is freedom in Jesus today. For those who believe that He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father, the only way to be counted as innocent before God is to acknowledge that Christ died for me. And He rose again to show there was not power over death, the death that sin brings about, but there was life And our hope, not only now, but in eternity, is in Christ. And in Christ alone. So you can make that decision to believe and follow Him today. And I challenge you to wrestle with that. Maybe you have made that decision, but man, in this season, you have become someone who is in bondage. To your job, to your stuff, to your money to whatever. 
and you are not living as someone who's free in Christ, may you recommit to following after Him today. There's freedom in Christ, amen? Let's commit to living as a church who is free in Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful that You have given us freedom in Christ. But Lord, we confess that we are so prone to walk and to live in bondage to this world, in bondage to our sin, to our flesh, to that which is around us, to the temporary, to the stuff that really doesn't matter, God. And yet we claim and hold true the promise that forgiveness is there if we confess our sin because You are a God who is faithful. Today, Lord, I ask that each one of us would leave here as those who have freedom in Christ. Not remaining in the bondage that we put ourselves in but motivated and encouraged by these truths. We commit all this into your hands in Jesus' name.